have turned the corner from the first half of our series focusing in on uh, some of the false teaching and things that were infecting uh, the Colossian church and uh, Paul uh, addressing those issues and those struggles and and proclaiming uh, very clearly over and over again that Jesus Christ is preeminent. He is uh, full of the, the deity that now dwells bodily in human form and uh, he is equal with the Father, and he is to be number one in our lives. And Paul has dealt a lot of uh, effort in reminding the people that they are to see Christ as preeminent in all that they do. And, in, and as we learned over these last couple chapters, that as we begin to know and understand the theology that Christ is preeminent, it should readily affect the lives that we live. It should affect our walks with him, And so over these next couple chapters of chapter 3 and 4, we're going to see how Christ is to preeminent, be preeminent not only in the world we live in, but in our walks. Literally our world that we are a part of, every decision that we make, how we relate to those that are closest to us, how we relate to those who we don't even know, how we relate to believers, how we relate to non-believers. Christ is to be preeminent in all of those things and uh, it's to be done in a way that we can bring glory and honor to him as we live out those truths uh, each and every day. Well, as we look to our scriptures this morning, we come to Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 through 11. And before we turn there or, or read uh, that this morning, I want to challenge you that this is going to be a tough message. One of the most difficult messages of preparation for me as a pastor in the book of Colossians Uh, Because it reminds me that I'm a sinner. It reminds me that there are things in my life that absolutely have to change if Christ is going to be preeminent. And as I worked through this passage, as I began to really work uh, and understand what this passage means, I was reminded over and over again that I have not arrived in the least bit. That Christ, in fact, is not preeminent in the things that I do. That there are other things in my life that become number one. I don't want them to be. I wish it wasn't the case. But it is. And I'm going to believe that I'm pretty normal and pretty average. You can argue that later with me. But I'm going to believe amongst you, my friends, and people that I love, that you and I find, our, find ourselves in the same boat. That we desire and long for the things of God. We, we're here, and we're here because we want Christ to be preeminent in our lives But there's something running through our veins. There's something running through our lives that right when we think we've got it figured out, we make that decision. We turn on that program. We allow things into our hearts and minds. We allow things to come out of our mouths. We we allow thoughts to fester. Anger and wrath and slander uh, to come from our hearts and, and out to even those we love. And we hate ourselves for it. We beat ourselves up because we we think we've come so far and then that that particular sin, that particular issue, the thing that we thought was buried long ago, seemingly is still alive and well today. Well, Paul's got some words for us this morning. Words for you as a congregation, words for me, uh, your preacher, and, and, and it's so important as we look at a passage like this that we don't look down the row at the person that we think really needs to hear this message. That we don't think about uh, our teenager or, or uh, our mom or dad. That we really think, man, I hope Tim really brings it because they could use some conviction. It is so vitally important for us this morning that we allow the word of the Lord to do a work in our lives. And not to look to the left or the right, but to allow the word of God to center its bullseye on our hearts 
and to ask some questions. And so my prayer this morning for all of us is that we'd be open enough to hear the word of the Lord this morning. And that we'd be honest enough with ourselves that, that there is a cancer running through our veins and, and we need the Lord's help. We need the Spirit's empowering to, to uh, deliver us from this so that we may live uh, a life that, that, that portrays to the world that Christ is in fact preeminent in all that we say and do. So let's go ahead and stand for the reading of God's Word. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, grab that pew Bible in the rack in front of you, and uh, you can find our passage on page 984, page 984, and I'm going to start with the passage that we uh, worked through uh, last week because it's a great uh, reminder of the truths of why we can have victory even though this issue, this cancer, uh, continues to befall us. Uh, Chapter 3 starts out, If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked, when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. But Christ is all and end all. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you, and Lord, we just take a moment in the quietness of this room and in this place to ask every one of us to ask Lord, open my eyes so that I can see you. Open my heart so I can hear you this morning. Lord, I pray that each of us would be willing to hear your word this morning. Not that the other weeks aren't important, but this one reminds us that there is an enemy. It reminds us that that we at times can be our own worst enemy. And Lord, this week, no doubt, there have been many losses on the battlefield. And for many of us, we come and we're broken down and, and we're reminded of our sin. And Lord, it is good for that to take place. That is your conviction. And Lord, I pray that we would not move away from that. But Lord, I also pray for those who seemingly have gone throughout this week and and, and lived unto themselves. Lord, we know your righteous ways, but, but we, in our stubbornness, go our own way. And it hasn't bothered us one bit. Lord, break our hearts this morning. Break them so that we can see you for who you really are. So that we can see us and our sin. And our need of a Savior. 
Well, we love you, Jesus. We love you because you came and, and you, you took our sin and you took our pain and you took our guilt. And we are no longer alienated from you, but we are reconciled. And, and now we have a destiny that, that when you appear, we will appear also with you in glory. Hallelujah. So, Lord, we pray that we would live in light of that truth, that hope today, which will empower us to say no to these things. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. This past week, I found myself in a doctor's office waiting, bored out of my mind, because I've come to learn while caterers have to be on time all the time, doctors can be an hour and ten minutes late, and they don't even have to say they're sorry. And as I was sitting in the waiting room, I, I had gone through all the apps on my phone, and my phone was about to die, and so now I was really getting mad because I didn't have anything to entertain me. So I went to the old way of being entertained in a waiting room, and that is to look to the coffee table to the magazines that are there waiting for you to read. And I picked up the People magazine. It's been a long time since I've read a People magazine. And I found myself looking at the um, edition or uh, um, installment of the magazine that was speaking about the Oscars. And it was talking about it was going to be the Oscar, uh, um, what do you call it, uh, articles about all that you needed to know of what was going on on that night of the great Oscar event. Now, I hadn't watched the Oscars. I'm not sure what the infatuation is. Maybe some of you like it. I, I don't get it. Give me a football game. Give me a good war movie. Oscars, I, it doesn't do anything for me. But there was nothing else to do, and I still did not know. I had a half an hour of waiting to go. And so... I read the articles, and I began to look at the articles, and I began to ask the question, well, maybe they're going to talk about some of the movies that have come out. Maybe some of the reasons why some of the movies were picked and why others were um, skipped over. Maybe some biographies about uh, that uh, best actor or best actress. Maybe a, a, a telling story about who they are. Maybe a difficult time growing up and, and then now a celebrity. And I couldn't find anything about that. In fact, all of the articles in the People magazine was all about what people were wearing that night. In fact, the secondary article was about who the best dressed and who the worst dressed people were on the red carpet. And I began to ask the question, is it all about the movies or is it all about what people are wearing? From the People magazine, it sure seems that the Oscar show is more about fashion than it is entertainment. And then I began to ask the question, what's so big about our clothing? What is it that, that attracts us so much to the things, these, these cloths that we wear on our bodies? And no doubt, clothing is important, and not to be uh, too funny or crass, but we need clothing to cover our bodies, okay? But, but what is it about our clothing that is so important for us as human beings? Well, clothing has a way, as celebrities have learned, to speak to who you are as a person, we can find out what a person likes and what they don't like by what they wear. We can find out what kind of person they are by the apparel that they choose. We can learn a lot about their job or occupation. If we were to uh, come into contact with any one of you during the day, we might know what you do or what kind of job you may have by the clothes you wear to work. We judge people all the time. By what they wear. And it's become a part of the human nature for us to be observant to the clothing that one wears. But did you know that clothing says a lot about you spiritually as well? 
Paul in our text tells us that what we wear will not only communicate our spirituality to others, but it also communicates our spirituality to God as well. Clothing, as Paul will say, in the spiritual sense, tells the world and God what is important to you and what you enjoy the most. Paul says that our clothing that we wear defines who we are, whether or not we are a follower of Jesus Christ or a follower of our own passions and desires. Now, why would Paul bring this up? In the days of Colossae, where Paul is writing, there was this disconnect. There were people called the Gnostics who were saying that they had this righteous and vibrant and healthy walk with God, that they were close with Jesus. But their clothing, their apparel said something totally different. They said they were righteous and holy, but their lives were filled with immorality. Their lives were filled with all kinds of sins, whether by the mouth or through the body or the internal passions that they had. And what they said was, is I can love God on the inside and live however I want to on the outside. And their clothing showed it to everyone who was watching, including a watching God. But you and I need to understand there's hypocrisy in that action. That we cannot say that what's going on on the inside is different than what's taking place on the outside. We cannot say that something good is happening on the inside when all that we see on the outside is bad. Paul makes it clear this morning that a good indication of what's going on in our hearts this morning can be seen by what we wear on the outside. And Paul says if, you're going to be, if Christ is going to be preeminent, then Christ must be the apparel that you and I wear each and every day. Now Paul's just reminded us we've been raised with Christ. We're no longer dead, but we're alive. We've been rescued from the tomb. This imagery, or this, this word phrase there, gives me the imagery of, of, of being moved back to the time where Lazarus was brought out of the grave. Remember the story in, in John chapter 11? Where Lazarus has been dead for days, and Jesus comes, and, and Lazarus' sisters are upset, and the people of Bethany are all worked up. Because Jesus could have gotten there earlier, but he hadn't. He wanted to make sure Lazarus was really, really dead. That there was no question that Lazarus was dead. And Jesus comes, and we remember, of course, Jesus weeps before the, the tomb of Lazarus. And people say, oh, look how Jesus loved him. They were close. And then Jesus, on that momentous moment, a moment that should be a reminiscent of all that we as Christ followers have had happen in our life, Jesus went to the tomb and he announced to the tomb, Lazarus, come forth. And what takes place is that dead body has breathed new life into it and he comes out. And he's all mummified, he's all covered in his grave clothes and the first thing out of the tomb That Jesus tells the workers there, the helpers, those ones that are observing what has taken place, is get those robes off him. He should no longer wear dead man's clothes. He's alive. And so likewise, you and I have been raised from the grave. We no longer need to wear our grave clothes. Our attitudes and our actions, the things that we wear in our lives have to change, Paul says, because we're no longer dead We're now alive. 
And so Paul has a word for the Colossians and a word for Village Bible Church and a word for you and I this morning. And there, there are two things very quickly that I want to address this morning with you. I want to keep it as simple as possible. The first thing that Paul wants us to be reminded of, if we're going to be Christ followers, and if what we're going to wear is going to look like what's going on in the inside with our relationship with God, then we've got to get rid of the dirty clothes. We've got to get rid of the dirty clothes. Notice verse 5. It says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Paul begins this passage by reminding us that we have been raised, we have been hidden, and one day we will appear with Christ. And because of that, we have been called to a very specific calling as followers of Jesus Christ. And the first step to that calling, Paul says, is that we need to get rid of some things. In fact, he uses the word put to death. Now before I go any further, please understand that Paul is using some of the most powerful and graphic language that he can to speak about this issue and struggle with sin. I want you to notice that that he doesn't say, all right, in verse 5, Try to keep in check your sexual immorality, your impurity, your evil desires, your passions. He he doesn't say, try to do these things in moderation. He doesn't say, as our culture does, if it feels right, then go ahead and do it. If you believe your orientation is that, then go ahead and do it. If you believe that God has given you biological synapses that fire for those types of things, then then go ahead and do it. He says very clearly, unequivocally, put to death. Synonyms, kill it, destroy it, decimate it, beat it into total submission, rid yourself of it. This word put to death, this phrase, comes from the Greek word necro. Necro is a word where we get the idea of the dead. And in this word that he uses, we need to understand that it's in what we call aorist tense, which means we are to do it. It's not a suggestion. It is a definite command. It is something that should produce a definite Result. You and I speak in aorist tense when we're upset with our children. There's no suggestion. There's no, well, maybe think about it. It's, we're called to do it. And we're to do it as quickly as possible. It's found in what we call the imperative mood. Meaning you're to do it without hesitation. You're to do it because it is an urgent order from your commanding general... And it's regarding the destruction of a sinister enemy that's within your camp and has the power to destroy you if it's given the opportunity. That that word there, necro, is is placed first, put to death in in the Greek construction of that word, which means that it's there for total emphasis. It's to grab our attention. Literally, you could hear Paul shouting from his Roman prison cell, kill sin before it kills you. I know that there are some in our midst that have gotten the bad medical reports of cancer. And it's a horrifying word that we don't want to hear. 
There's something in you, the doctor says, that's growing. It's a malignancy. And it's going to continue to grow, and it's going to affect your life. And, and little by little, it's going to eat away at your organs and, and at your very life itself. And, and we got to do something about it. And so what does the doctor say? Well, you know what? Let's not worry about it. Is it hurting right now? Because if it's not hurting right now, well, then don't worry about it. You enjoying life right now? Well, then when you start not enjoying life, then we'll address that cancer. No, any good doctor would say, if there's cancer in the system, we got to kill it. And we don't, it doesn't matter. Listen, your, your radiologist, or your, uh, not radiologist, your oncologist, i got to get my doctors right, your oncologist is not going to say, you know what, I'm deeply concerned that you might lose a little bit of your pleasure, a little bit of your pleasant living, and so we won't do the radioactive treatments we need to, Right? No, they say, this is going to hurt. This isn't going to be fun. This is going to cause you pain. It's going to cause you discomfort. But here's the problem. We'll take a little discomfort. We'll take a little pain because we got to kill that enemy that's inside of you. Paul is telling us that the sin that we have inside of us is a cancer. And it's eating away at our souls. And you may not feel it right now. Maybe the symptoms aren't that big right now. But Paul says, if you don't listen to this, the symptoms are only going to get worse. The pain's only going to grow. And at some point, it's going to take your life. And so Paul, the the good physician, the apostle, says, we got to deal with it. Well, how do we deal with it? We deal with it the only way we know how. With an enemy, we kill it. If anyone served in the military, they know that they are conditioned with the instinct to kill. And that while that may seem gruesome for us as civilians, our army knows that if our soldiers hesitate one second on the battlefield, it'll be too late. And so they invest time and energy into our young men and women uh, to train them, focusing them on preparing for the enemy and their measured response when they see that enemy on the battlefield. When our soldiers go on the battlefield, when they fight these wars, when they face the enemy combatant on that field of battle, they don't swap emails. They don't make friends. They don't ask them who they are and what neighborhood they grew up in. No questions are asked. It is kill or be killed. Without sounding too dramatic, let us be reminded that Paul speaks of this when he says in Ephesians chapter 6, we're in a battle. That we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but we we battle against the spiritual forces of hell and and the devil. And the spiritual forces that are waging war against us in this world. And and we can't kill the devil. We can't do that. That's that's something God's going to deal with in his own time and his own way. But we are called as as people to put on the full armor of God, to resist the devil, and to stand firm in the faith. So what is Paul calling us to kill? Notice in the text that we are to kill uh, one of our greatest weaknesses. That is what is earthly within us, what is called the, the flesh. Since the days of Adam in the garden, Christ's followers have had a traitor in their midst. This traitor knows all of our defense mechanisms, all of our strategies, and betrays us anytime he or she can. 
What's the traitor's name? That which is earthly in you. The flesh, the old man, the carnal you. The closest thing we have a definition to this entity within us is Romans 8, 7 and 8, which says the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's laws. Indeed, it cannot. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You see, if you're living for your flesh, then you can't live for God because your flesh is in total rebellion against God. You see, in the flesh, that was the old me, the one that was a rebel against God, the one that was hostile and insubordinate against God and his ways. In my old flesh, I hated the thought of admitting I was sick with sin. We would defy the idea that our greatest need was the great physician to make us well. Because in our flesh, we trusted our own wisdom, not God's wisdom. Our ways instead of God's ways. And so everything that I did in the flesh did not please God. It only angered him more. Because everything I did in the flesh was apart from faith. Because the flesh is the old, self-reliant, faithless, insolent, rebellious, you and me. And it's living within us. And it's doing all that it can to do away with us. Paul says in Colossians 3.3 there, and just in the text before us, that as a believer, this part of the flesh has been put to death. What it means is it no longer has its position in our lives. We have now the ability to say no to the flesh and turn from it. But remember, you and I have a tendency, we learned a couple weeks ago, to go dig up the graves and start putting on our old flesh because it feels so good. It feels so right. But Paul says we must rid ourselves of it. And notice he's going to tell us there are three things we need to rid ourselves from in the passage. Number one, ridding ourselves of dirty clothes means destroying our old passions. Destroying our old passions. The first thing that we need to rid ourselves of, Paul says, is sexual immorality. And he goes on and he says impurity, passion, and evil desires, and covetousness. I want you to recognize that commentators believe that all of those things are in the sexual realm. That because of where he puts sexual morality, what he's doing is he's breaking down that sexual morality uh, comes from impurity, which comes from passion, Which passion comes from evil desires, and evil desires come from greed, that I want something in the sexual realm, I will get it no matter what it costs me, or no matter what it costs someone else. Now before I go too far into this, let me be very blunt and clear. Paul says immorality is unbecoming of a believer. But he does not say that sexual relations within the confines of a marriage between a husband and wife, are never censored in the Bible. Never. Nowhere in the Bible does it say, you know what, husband and wife? Ease up in the bedroom category. Come on. I mean, there's a limit to things. Never. Every time sexuality is spoken of between a husband and wife, the Bible celebrates it. It applauds it. It says that is God's calling for you as a husband and wife. 
God is the biggest fan of the sexual union between a husband and wife. And the reason why he's the biggest fan is because he created it for our good and for our enjoyment. God's created this gift as a wedding gift for a husband and wife. So that they might be fruitful and multiply so that two flesh may become one in a union that God has created. But Paul's not talking about that, so let's not invest too much time there. But Paul says this issue of sexual desire is a powerful thing in our world and culture. Does the scriptures not blow you away? 2,000 years ago, this could have been written yesterday. I mean, Paul could have been watching what's on our cable network shows and written the same thing. And so let us recognize that this issue of sexuality has not come out of the blue. It's been there long before we ever came on the stage. This issue of sexual immorality wasn't just a New Testament thing. But as we look back, even into the lives of some of the heavy hitters, the patriarchs, the men and women of faith, they struggled with their sexuality as well. What causes this? What causes this insidious battle with this thing that God has created for our good? Why is it that we've changed it and made it so bad? Why is it that we've made it so dirty? Why is it that we've made it so depraved and so perverted? Paul says that while these feelings are natural and good, and even God-given, we are created as sexual beings, That the devil and this world has taken those feelings and those desires and caused us to be tempted to move away from God's intended plans and purposes to go get them on our terms. And because of that, we have turned the world of biblical sexuality upside down. And we wonder why there's disease We wonder why there's broken relationships. We wonder why there's unwanted pregnancy, why there are abortions. We wonder why and the reason why is sexual immorality comes from impurity, which comes from evil desires, which comes from covetousness. And what Paul writes in Colossians is a word of warning for us. Get it right before this cancer kills you. Now, some of you might think right away, well, Tim, you're dealing and addressing the men in our congregation. And yes, I am. Far too many of us as men have been broken by this sin. But I'm here to conclude once and for all that this sin is no longer a male-only issue. Every study and survey tells us Let's not forget the woman's best-selling novel and movie right now. That immorality is an issue for both genders. It affects us all. Did you know that every, that, that for every, uh, how do I say this, uh, uh, with every internet search, there are more searches for pornography than any, everything else combined? You don't think we have a problem with this? And surveys tell us that the church is no different in their, in their struggles with sexual immorality than the rest of this world. This word immorality, just for the sake of, of knowledge, is the Greek word porneia. It's where we get pornography from. Paul was speaking about pornography before Playboy was around. 
before internet porn was around. Pornography was alive and well in the city of Colossae and in the church of Colossae. It was in the church. Why? Because Paul's writing to a group of Christians and he's saying, hey, Christians, put this to death. He's not talking about the outside world. He's speaking to the church and he's saying, Christian, you cannot be raised with Christ and and hidden in Christ and one day appear with Christ and all the while between now and then living in lives of immorality. He says you got to stay away from it. Now when one hears the words immorality, it falls on deaf ears. At times like this, it's good to speak bluntly about what this word immorality means. And so let me in one minute tell you what immorality means. It means no sexual wrongdoing. No premarital sex. No friends with benefit. No extramarital sex of any kind. No messing around. No being faithless to one's spouse. No homosexual acts. No pornography, whether it's in print or on your TV or, or through the internet. No fantasy novels, no books or magazines that are full of innuendos and sexually descriptive situations. I mean, just so you know, if you think it's okay to read that magazine that Walmart has to cover in the checkout aisle, Christian, you've got a problem. This is sexual immorality. Because these things have one intention in mind, and that is to get yourself turned on. To turn on that illicit buzz within you that says, my sexuality is preeminent, not Christ. My feelings, my my desires are more important. They're number one in my life, not Christ. Christ, and as Christ has pointed out over and over again, if something causes you to sin, cut it off, kill it, get rid of it. And so Paul likewise, just as his Savior taught him, says to us, put to death sexual immorality. All of these things must be ridded from our lives. We can't reduce these urges to simply feelings. Our sexuality, it has to be, and this is so important, Our sexuality runs deep. And we're hearing that from our broken friends and family members and and even believers who struggle with same-sex attraction. They say, this is who I am. And I would say, brothers and sisters, you were not created for that, nor were we created for sexual immorality, 1 Corinthians 6 says. But we must understand as believers that our sexuality runs as deep as anything in our lives. And it's not easy. These feelings that we have, these these desires that we have, though they were God-given, we have allowed by the work of the devil in this world to betray them and to turn from them. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, turn there for a moment if you can. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, if you're in the book of Colossians, go back to your left. If you're following in a pew Bible... Turn to page 900, let me find it myself, 955, page 955 in that pew Bible. Here's what Paul says, don't let your sexuality, listen, this is so important. Our sexuality, as important as it is in our lives, as deep as it runs in our lives, the Bible says, the Bible says it should never define you. It should never identify you. Nor should it consume you. Listen to what Paul says to the church at Corinth. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. 
All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality. Listen to what he says. But for the Lord. So when someone tells you, especially a follower of Jesus Christ, that God's made me this way, and this is what I'm supposed to do, you take him to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and you say the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. Verse 15, do you not know that the body are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Therefore, flee sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. For you do you not know the body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? Whom you have from God. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. Follower of Jesus Christ, what rings true about your life this morning? Is it about your sexual desires and wants? What have you allowed to creep into your life? What have you allowed for the sake of entertainment? What have you allowed for the sake of feeling good? Paul says it must die. It is unfitting for a child of God to live by. Number two, notice. He says disregard your old practices. After addressing our proclivity to fulfill our sexual urges outside of the will of God, he moves on to different practices. Notice in verses 8 and 9 of our text, he lists them. He says now you got to also put away anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices. For the sake of time, Paul puts these things into three categories. And it's important for us to see as we look at these three categories what the source of these practices are. When you have a problem with your mouth, especially how you're rude to people and how you Speak to people in an ungodly way. Paul says that one of the sources of your problem with your mouth has nothing to do with your mouth at all. It has to do with your heart. And where these hurtful and painful and and sinister things come from when you speak come from a heart of anger and a heart of wrath. And he says when you're angry and when you're filled with wrath, things are going to come out of your mouth. And notice what kinds of words come out. Write this down. Things that defame others. You're going to say words or use words that defame others. Here he speaks of malice and slander to distract, I'm sorry, detract from another's reputation and good name. We do this with gossip. Did you hear so-and-so is doing this or that? You don't know it to be true or not. It just feels so good to say it. This sort of language and speech comes from an angry heart. And it's angry, why? Because usually it's angry that someone is getting something that you yourself believe you should have. The the Pharisees were big into this sin. When they saw Jesus, their only desire was to defame him. They didn't like that the crowds were following him. They didn't like that he was the talk of the town. They didn't like that people were calling him the Messiah. They wanted to be preeminent, not Jesus. And so what do they do? They say he's doing the works of the devil. 
that he's filled with the devil himself. And out of jealousy, they find themselves defaming and we do the same thing. Someone gets a promotion and we defame them. Someone's a little more popular than we are and we defame them. Someone's got a role or, or, or an opportunity that you haven't been given and so you defame them. We use our anger and our wrath, we use our words to deliver the blow. He goes on and he says there are words that defile others. Write that down, defile others. He speaks of obscene talk. A believer should never be guilty of telling defiling stories. Nor should a believer be using language that is unbecoming of a believer. What that means is if the world, listen, if the world has defined a word as a curse word, we probably shouldn't be using it. And I know, and, and listen, I know that, that some real popular pastors have, have made their, their name by being cool and using bad language. I'm telling you, it's immature and it's unbecoming of the pulpit of Jesus Christ. We need to be careful of this. We need to be careful with the words that come out of our mouths. Paul will later say in chapter 4 that Christians, our conversation should always be full of grace, sprinkled with salt. The idea of salt there is utter purity. That our people around us don't see us using the same language, speaking about the same things. And it isn't just the four-letter words I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is that our lips should, pro, what should proceed from the lips of our, of our mouth are, are words that build up and glorify God and encourage others, not tear them down or beat them up. What does your speech say about you? Does it sound like the world or does it sound like your Lord? The final way that we can use our words in a wrong way is we can use words that defraud others. They can defraud others. Paul says we're not to tell lies. God hates lying. He hates it because it is the endorsed weapon of his enemy, the devil, who is the father of lies. And yet as believers, we lie for so many reasons. Children lie to their parents to cover wrongdoing. Businessmen and women lie to get the deal. Governments lie to cover themselves and get elected. And we are telling lies for whatever reason we want to cover our tracks and to make sure that our preeminence goes unaffected by our circumstances because we're more important. And so if we have to cover ourselves because we're the most important thing in the world, then we will do so. And here's the thing. Even as believers, we're telling lies when we tell somebody we're going to do something and don't live up to that commitment. You see, God is a God of total truth and honesty and faithfulness in all his words. And so it should be true for all his children. The story is told of a bishop named Warren Candler. He was preaching about the lies of Ananias and Sapphira of the book of Acts and asked his congregation in a loud, thundering way, if God still struck people dead for lying, where would I be? Some in the congregation began to laugh. But the smiles disappeared when the bishop shouted, I'd be right here preaching to an empty church. That's that's fireable. But might that be true of us today? Ananias and Sapphira lied to God, and they died. How many deaths would you and I have died this week because of the things that came out of our mouth? 
Aren't you glad for grace? The final thing that Paul says is you've got to drop your prejudices. At the end of our text, it almost seems like, Paul, where are you going with this? Here, after talking about all of this uh, need to turn away from sin, now you've got to drop your prejudices. In verse 11, he reminds us that there are no human distinctions. He says, here there's not Greek and Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. What Paul is saying is is that we've got to put to death anything within us that says that there's a human distinction or difference that precludes someone from full fellowship within the church. What it is is we're talking racism, sexism, all of those isms that, that destroy the very fabric of our fellowship with one another. Paul says in Christ all these things should disappear. Because in Christ there are no nationalities. We're all strangers in a strange land. In Christ, none of us carries a place that's special in the heart of God over another. For we are all, as he'll say later in our text next week, we are all God's chosen ones who are all beloved. No matter what rituals we've done, there's nothing that separates us. There's no cultural differences, no matter how barbaric some of us may be. And surely there is no social economic division which elevates the rich over the poor in the church. And so Paul says, because we remember that we're all poor, we're all dead, and Christ is the one who made us rich and made us alive, then there's great importance in verse 11 for us as a church that Village Bible Church cannot only be built, it can only be built, let me rephrase, the church can only be built on the word of Jesus Christ. And if we build our church on the word of Jesus Christ, then we must build our fellowship not on artificial or sinful measures such as race, color, ethnicity, or social standing, because all of these go against the heart of God and the word of God that tells us Christ is in all. So let me tell you something. Village Bible Church must be known as a church with opening arms. It must be known as a church that loves When the people of Sugar Grove and the Fox Valley area hear of Village Bible Church, they should surely be able to say, they receive all and love all because Christ does. Paul says this catalog of sins has to go. And if we're really honest with one another, we would say that Paul is right when he says all of us used to walk in these ways and maybe even still do. So how do we address this issue? Second point you got to get rid of the old dirty clothes, and you need to now replace them with clean clothes. Paul says in verse 10, we need to uh, put on these new garments. Put off the old self with his practice, end of verse 9, and put on the new flesh, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So when we come to Christ, we come with soiled clothing. We're corrupted. We're dirty. And our dirty clothes announce, as I said We're on the red carpet of the world and we're wearing these dirty, filthy clothes. And we announce to the world, we're filthy, we're dirty, but here's some solace. I'm dirty like the rest of us are. I'm dirty, you're dirty, we're all dirty. And and I can look and say, I'm not as dirty as you are. 
My, my stains are only up here. They're not on my pants. They're, they're not on my shoes. They're, they're, I only got a little stain. You got a lot of stain. And, and that's what we do. We look at each other's stains and, and we say, well, my stains aren't as bad as yours are. Mine aren't as gross as yours are. But here's the problem. Jesus comes out of the limo and the red carpet and he's brilliant and he's white and he's without any spot or blemish. And then what are we reminded of? The only thing we're reminded of is not how each of us can compare against one another, but how we compare to Jesus. And because Jesus is clean and pure and holy, we can look at our garments and see that whatever degree of filth we have on it doesn't matter. Based on Jesus, we're filthy to the core. And here's the great gospel. The one who is righteous, the one who is clean, the one who is perfect became filth on our behalf. He took our garments and he put them on himself and he died a sinner's death on the cross. And he did so so that he could raise us anew with new garments so that we might be as bright and white as snow. And he does so so that we can put on the new self, Paul says. But what does that involve? Very quickly, I won't take a lot of time here, but very quickly it involves a conscious decision. Brother and sister in Christ, you have to make a decision today. Am I going to wear the filth of sin? Or will I wear the righteousness of Christ? The idea of putting on and and putting off speaks of a decisive decision. You and I have to make a decision. Some of us are struggling with our sin because we've never put a stake in the ground. I am going to live like this no more. I will not do this because this makes me preeminent, not Christ. you got to take off the old things. And here's the thing, you're powerless to do it. So you say, how do I do it? Christ does it for you. And now, as Christ has empowered you to be able to do it, you have to be willing to change. You have to make a conscious decision to take off the old and, and put on the new. When you got up this morning, you made a decision. And I know you made a decision. Because you're not wearing your pajamas. So you made a decision, I am not going to go out into the world wearing my pajamas. I'm going to take off these clothes and I'm going to put on new clothes because that's what's fitting. The Christian must ask the question every morning, i got to take off the old clothes and I need to put on the new clothes because if I'm going to have any effect in the world for Christ and his kingdom, I can't go around wearing these drabs of dead people. I must put on life. I must put on Christ. It involves a decision. Number two, it involves a continual practice. Verse 10 says we are being renewed. The idea there is this is ongoing thing. And so you say, but Tim, you don't understand. I've done this before. And I say, do it again. And do it again. And you're going to get dirty and, 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 and ask for forgiveness. And Christ will again make you as white as snow. And you just continue this process. And you say, why in the world would I go in this process? Because Paul promises that he who began a good work in you is faithful to see it to the day of completion. And so as you struggle along, as you work along, Christ promises that when we appear with him in glory, we will be like him. And so he's teaching us. And he's molding us and he's making us more like Christ. And he's renewing in us in knowledge. Knowledge means I know what my sin is. I recognize it for what it is. And I recognize that I have a Savior who deals with sin. Who has the power to defeat sin if I will live in accordance to his word. 
So each and every day we get up with a desire to honor God and honor Him in all His ways. To be willing to say no to ourselves. When was the last time you told yourself no so that you could say yes to Christ? This means that, that we need to renew our faith each and every day. Do you agree with Christ with regards to your sin? Do you agree that his ways are better? That his timing is perfect no matter what your body is telling you? That his idea for you and your life, whether it's the words that come out of your mouth or it's your sexuality or anything in between, that his ways are best. And if you follow him, he will bless you as a result. It's only then we'll be able to fight off the schemes of the devil. Finally, it involves a commitment to God's plan. God has a purpose. He wants to renew you into the image of, its, of your creator. When God created people, he made them in his image. But sin and rebellion marred that image. And the purpose of salvation is now to recreate God's image in us. And the reason why he doesn't take us away to heaven when we ask Christ to be our savior is that the purpose of salvation is to allow us to recognize that in all things God works for the good of those who love him and have called according to his purpose. And so what has God done? God has foreknown us. He's predestined us. And now he's conforming us to the likeness and image of his son. You see, God wants to change you each and every day. In every way so that you and I will become more like Jesus. And that means each and every day, We get up. Our goal is not to take care of ourselves, but to knock ourselves off of our throne and to put Christ there and say, you're in charge. So how do we do it? Very quickly. Some application. Some action steps for you. Number one, sin is serious business. Don't play games with it. Do you play games with cancer? No, you kill it. Verse 6 says that the wrath of God is coming on account of these things. God is angry about this, and you and I should be as well. So whatever sin you're struggling with today, see it as God does, a serious offense against his holiness and something that you should not play games with. Number two, you've got this sin, you don't know what to do. Seek the help of other believers. Find a partner to fight with sin. Do you have someone in the battle with you? In verse 11, we're reminded that while we may all be different, that sin affects us all. And we need brothers and sisters in our lives that help us in this process. And so let me, let me tell you something very quickly this morning. If you are fighting your sin alone, you are losing the battle. Did you hear me? If you are fighting this sin, meaning if this sin that you have in your life, whatever it is, no one knows about it, you're losing the battle. Because there is no way that you can fight that battle on your own without some other band of brother alongside of you or sister who is going to help you in the calling. You won't be able to do it. You need others around you. And so many of us are told by, by the devil that if we share, if we, if we speak, well, people will think we're weird because you're a sinner. We're all sinners. The most uh, unremarkably lame thing we can say as believers is that we're sinners. That should be ho-hum. Yep. We shouldn't be standing aghast. Oh, did you hear what so-and-so did? And we're sinners. Of course we do those things. Why would we think anything less? 
That's why we need a Savior. And so find a partner. Find someone, listen, trusted, who you can share your heart with and say, brother, sister, I'm struggling with these things. I need help. I need accountability. I need, I need you to come along and lock arms. I don't need you to judge me. I need you to help bear my burden with me because this sin is wreaking havoc in my life. I need someone to help root this cancer out with me. Number three, when battling sin, see Christ as the best. Get passionate about him. For some of us, we're coddling and petting and, 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 and uh, growing in our relationship with our sin. We love our sin. And we've made our sin preeminent. But this book of Colossians tells us over and over again that Christ is preeminent. And we need to get passionate about him. So maybe that means turning off the TV. Maybe that means uh, stop reading the things that we're reading. Maybe it means stop hanging out with some of the people that we're hanging out with because they're, they're affecting our character. Whatever it is, whatever gets me closer to Christ, I need to see Christ as the best, not my sin. Because when Christ is preeminent, when he's number one, the songwriter says, when we turn our eyes on Jesus... The things of earth will go strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. If you're struggling with sin this morning, the problem isn't that sin is all that glamorous. The problem is, is your view of Jesus isn't that glorious. Make him the best because that's what he is. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you and Lord, I pray you would speak to our hearts this morning. I pray that you would lead and guide with these words this morning. These aren't easy words, Lord. You know I've struggled with this all week long. This is not a message that I look forward to preaching. Because it's a reminder that here I am, the hypocrisy of standing up and sharing your word as a sinner to another group of sinners. And it just doesn't make sense. But Lord, I'm so thankful that we have been raised by you. And we've been raised with you. And now we have the hope of appearing with you in glory. And though the battle may be hard, though the sins may be all around us, whether by use of our words or or the use of our body or the impure and evil desires that we have, all of these things are idolatry. They put you away as being preeminent. And they make us number one. So Lord, I pray that we would knock down all the idols this morning in our lives. That we would see you as truly glorious. And that as we see you, as the songwriter says, everything else will go dim. And that we will be able to say once and for all, these things are put to death. We're not going there anymore. Empower us to live that way. Now, Lord, as we have heard this word, we're going to go out into a world that will bombard us to resurrect these things in our lives. And, Lord, I pray that we would encourage and help one another so that we may say when we come back next week, It was a good week. I walked with my God and I said no to sin for his glory and his honor. And because of that, I am filled with joy and peace because I'm living the way my creator made me to live. I pray we'll have that victory this week. So help us be a church that helps one another to that end. Thank you for your word, Father. Thank you for speaking it through your servant, Paul. And thank you for his Uh, desire and willingness to, to lead the people of Colossae and us today through his inspired words from you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.